Welcome to a Heritage Christian Centre podcast. For more information, visit www.heritagecc.com.au. We hope this message blesses your life. Man, it's good to have a girls' night out, isn't it? Oh, I just, I'm trying to keep it in, but I'm just busting on the inside because us girls, when we get together, we laugh, we cry, we speak. We repeat, we laugh, we cry, we speak, we repeat and we just keep going, going like that. And it's so cool when we all get together. There is blessing when we come together as one in unity. And I just thank God for that. I thank God for nights like this. And we just really want to be, we are so thankful that you're here. We want to welcome every single lady that's here tonight because we know that for some of you, it's been tricky to get here tonight. It's been difficult with little ones, with families and things like that. And so we're really thankful that you're here. And we pray that tonight will speak to your heart and speak to where you are at and that you will be encouraged by the Word tonight. Special mention to um, the online watchers. So everybody turn around and wave to the, yep, radio. Yep, very good. You're part of the family, so we pray that you feel welcome as well. And let's give it up for our youth girls right here. Well done and welcome to you guys. You guys are an inspiration to us and encouragement to us. So we're so thankful that you're here. And so to this weekend is going to be an awesome weekend. So, you know, yeah. click your seatbelts in because we're in for a great ride. And tonight we get to kick it off. Us girls get to kick off the whole weekend. And I think that's pretty cool. I think that's worth a woohoo! Woohoo! Awesome. So I don't know about you, um, but whenever I hear Pastor Shane give a message or whenever I hear a message from him, a couple of things happen. I feel very, very full up here. I feel very full down here. But I also feel very challenged not to just be a hearer of the Word and to take it all in because every time it's like, whoa, I didn't see that before. But the challenge is not to just be a hearer, but to actually be a doer and take it out there to the marketplaces and to the places where you go that I can't go and I go where you can't go, but together we can go. And so... It's going to be a great weekend, so let's give it up for Pastor Shane tonight. A pro would have turned the mic on before he got up here. Brenda, I reckon that was one of the best introductions of me I've ever heard in my life. I mean, honestly, flipping amazing. It's so good to be with you. If you're the type likes to follow on actual Bible, Genesis 6. Uh, we're going to get there in a second. If not, we've created some uh, slides to follow along with. It's so good to be back here with my Bundaberg family, and, uh, and we're going to have a good time. As always, if, if you're new to, to me, this is all I do. I travel around and speak. I had the incredible privilege of being mentored by a pastor who happens to have his rabbi training as well, so my stuff tends to come from that. But I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology, so I am qualified to sort your head out. So careful what you say to me. I can see through all that stuff. Um, um, I, I, anytime I'm at Heritage, uh, what we tend to do, um, some, sometimes you preach because it's time to, 
Sometimes you preach because you actually have something to say, right? And so I actually have something to say. And, and what I tend to do is I tend to build the messages on each other, and then I leave something really special for Sunday night. And so I'm going to encourage you, if it's at all possible, to be here tomorrow night at 7. I have something very special set aside Sunday morning, obviously. And then Sunday night, I, um, I've been coming here, I don't know, 16 years. I, and, and here's a phrase you've never heard me say ever, and, um, and I'm not saying it now. You'll never hear me say God said. You'll never hear me say the word of the Lord or God. Or I, I don't like to put the word God on my words because um, I, don't, I just don't want to manipulate that extra weight. And there's no vacancy in the Trinity for me. If, if the words I'm speaking resonates in your spirit, I'll leave that between you and the Holy Spirit, right? Like that, that's fine. Uh, and so I'm not saying God said. Now, I, I am saying that I have a deep inner knowing that particularly what I'm going to talk about this weekend, and specifically Sunday night, is a specific word for where we must go. And, um, and so I'm going to encourage you to come wrestle with that. And let's see, let's see where this takes us. Um, after this is over, I do have a resource table set up with our USBs. We have USBs with audio and video. Um, 100% of what we make from that, we give to the poor and the afflicted. Uh, we have three orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking. We've also started... Um, you know, if, if single moms and people like that call, you know, call us and say, look, we need food. So we, we, we're able to provide things like that for them because we're living with a conviction that we're called to bring heaven here, not simply go to heaven when we die. Um, now, since the last time I was here, I've got three brand new ones out there. Uh, so I finished my series on the book of Revelation. Um, I could not cope with the stuff. So, I, so but I, 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 what I, one of the things I did in the original series is I skipped over the seven churches really quickly. And the reason is, is because I couldn't do them justice. With, so I intended to go back and go through each one. So I just finished that. It's, uh, it goes through all seven churches and tells the histories and all of that and then reads the letter with that. It's just really, really has come off very, very well. That's out there. I also, um, with the help of Pastor Wayne Elkhorn, um, uh, he asked me to come do a six-hour short course on how to approach the scripture more meaningfully at Hope Center. And they, they, they filmed it for me. They recorded it for me. He interviewed me with Q&As at the end of it. It just came off really, really well. And, they, and then they graciously gave me the recording as my own. And so that was really, really good. So that's, you're only about the third or fourth place that's had that. It's really brand new. It's out there, and it'll, it'll help you a lot. Also, um, the, the church leaders have asked me to handle the sex topic. So um, that's, this is going to sound like I'm making a joke, but my master's degree is in sex, all right? So, so I'm a theoretical expert, all right, right? Now, and so no, in theory, no one's better than me at that, all right? Now, in practice, pretty much crap, but in theory, like I'm the best. And so, and so they, asked me, they, they asked me to talk through it, and so I did. And um, it, it ended up being an 11-part series that's meant to really help. It's their 15-minute sessions that have discussion questions and helps us with more profound questions uh, around that. It's already been run by the powers that be, all right? So it's fine. And, and, it's, um, and, it's, and it's meant to be... It's, 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 it's meant to be, help us with better questions a, around that. Somebody picked it up and said, how do you talk about that for 11 sessions? I'm like, well, it's not a technique manual, right? That would, that would be four minutes long. It's, it's actually... It's actually an exploration of spirituality, sexuality, and how we, how, the implication of how we think about that topic and what it means for our world. And so um, you could pick that up out there. And, and again, it's, it, it all goes to the point of the afflicted. Now, I've been told 
that you're having a, 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 like a, a, a dinner or a tea afterwards, okay? And that's going to be out here. Now, I'm not going to be staying for that for a couple reasons. One, I've already eaten. Two, it's your night. Three, I have an impossible task of keeping up with three conversations that go on at once, which is what tends to go on out there. So that's three. So, so here's, here's the thing. If you know you're not going to get anything, God bless. If you know I'm going to grab something, if you could do that, I'm only going to keep that open for about 10 minutes, and then I'm going to shut it down, and I'm here all weekend. I will say that if you know you're going to get something throughout the weekend, the earlier the better, because everybody comes on Sunday, and it just creates a traffic problem. So you could pick that up out there and know that you're helping us. All right, so Genesis 6. So I, I journey together regularly online with a small group of people, and, um, and I wrote this for them. And after writing this for them and having a discussion and doing all this, uh, several of them challenged me. They said, Shane, this is really needed. You need to make this into a sermon that can be delivered in a group. And so I did, um, at least I attempted to, and you're the first group I've ever tried this on, right? I have never preached this in front of a whole crowd before. It was written, meant to be like a small group discussion. So if this is terrible, I've just asked that you would consider the entire work of 16 years and not this one moment. But I don't think it's going to be. I think we're going to journey together here very well because I want to talk to you about love and I want to talk to you about God and I want to talk to you about how our primary images of God uh, are formed. So, so the, the issue is, is that when I say, do you love God tonight, right? People, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, how thankful are you for God tonight, right? Everybody, oh, right, yeah, yeah. And, and actually those sentences don't really matter. What matters is, is what we picture when I say that, right? So if I say, hey, are you surrendered to God? Do you love God? Are you thankful for God? The word God doesn't really matter. How people picture God matters because whatever we picture God to be, we become, right? We, it gets stamped into like this highest moral preference for what a good person looks like. As the theologian G.K. Beale said, we become what we worship. Psalm 135 says people make God in their own image and then they become it. Uh, my, my friend who's a pastor in Ireland, he said, Shane, what happens is people tend to make God in their own image and then they worship it, right? And so in other words, they, they're saying God, Jesus, Bible, scripture, truth. But what they mean is their own self with a giant megaphone. In that sense, God becomes this giant projection of what we like. And so people then use words like, you know, like if you've ever tried to lead worship, you've experienced this. You do your best, you're leading worship. And by the way, good job, good job. And, 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 and the Samoan lady, man, that was also, it's one of the few times in all of Australian history that my name was said right, right? Because she got it, she nailed it. So anyway, so, so just, just great job. But, I, I, but most people up here were volunteers. And so you volunteer and you're doing your best and you practice for hours. And, you, and then some ordinary person says, I don't know what y'all was wrong with y'all tonight, God wasn't in the song, you know? It's like, God wasn't in the song. Like, what? Like, say what you mean. I didn't like the song, right? That's what you actually mean. But the idea that God is some projection of our basic preference is, well, if I didn't like it, God must not have liked it. And if God doesn't like it, then God's not in the song. And so if you don't like me, then don't take it up with me. Take it up with God. Like, it sounds like that. It's that we, our primary image of God dictates how we treat people. And that's why our primary image of God is important. Because however we picture God is how we'll justify treating others. And so I want to show you an image of God that I don't think gets enough playtime. As a matter of fact, I don't know that it gets any playtime. But when I saw this, it really helped me. I think this needs to be talked about. This is Genesis 6, verse 6. You bring that first slide up. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. 
and his heart was deeply troubled. The Hebrew word there is atzab. Atzab in Hebrew is the same word you would use if a lover breaks your heart. It's to grieve, to pain in the heart. It's divine heartbreak, which leads me to this. Next slide. Common images of God. You have people who see God as, if I say God, they picture some warrior. And you can always pick those people out in a crowd. They're the one that are fighting the battle everywhere. And you know, God's a warrior, so I'm a warrior. You know, it's this kind of thing. And so that's a common image of God or, or creator. And you can always tell when people see God primarily as a creator because those are the people that when they see disorder, they can't wait to engage the disorder, not to hurt it, shame it, criticize it, or condemn it, but to engage the broken story in order to make a better narrative. Why? Because their primary image of God is a God that doesn't avoid disorder. He engages the disorder in order to make a better narrative. So their primary image of God starts dictating how they live, which becomes problematic if you see God as a judge. And I mean like the courtroom judge sense of the word. Like when I was a seven-year-old, my Sunday school teacher told me that one day I'd go to heaven and God would put my whole life on a giant movie screen for everybody to look at, which leads to all kinds of questions like, how boring can you make heaven? Look, my life's not that interesting now, right? Is heaven sitting around watching people's lives? Would you really want to go there? Plus 13.7 billion people have lived and died with an average lifespan of 50 years. That means the first 650 billion years of eternity is watching people's lives. That's not compelling. Like strap in everybody. Next up, Methuselah, right? Come on, right? <laughs> like what a ridiculous concept. Plus, it, it, plus at least all kinds of mental health issues. Like how mentally unhealthy do you have to be to say yes to a relationship to someone who says beforehand, they're going to shame you in front of everybody? That's, and so if you see God as a public shamer, then we'll justify being a public shamer because God's like that. And if God's like that, that must be what I need to be. Of course, the Hebrew word judge is not a courtroom official. It's someone anointed by God to set you free. It's a defender. There's an entire book in the Old Testament called the book of Judges. And these people aren't courtroom officials. These are people anointed by God to set you free. So when I say you'll stand in front of Jesus and he'll judge you, what I mean is one day you'll be in the presence of the one finally and fully anointed by God to defend you and set you free from anything that's holding you back. Now, if you see that image of God, it fundamentally justifies and dictates how you treat others. But we all know people who see God primarily as a judge because what do they do? They judge. Or, or, or God as a system of theology or set of absolute truths. These are people who, when they say God, what they mean is what we believe, not who he is. And you can always tell these people because what happens is, is that if you start challenging their set of beliefs, well, they start crumbling and get very angry. Why? Because you're not just talking about a belief. You're talking about God. Now, you're taking on God. Now, wait, I'm taking on God. I'm talking about that belief. And these folks can't separate what they believe from who God is. And that becomes a, a problem. Or, or, or an obvious uh, common image is God as a father, which is awesome. If your father was awesome, but a lot of people struggle. I, I, I know people personally who say they can't believe in God because when I got to talking to them, the primary image of God presented to them was a father and their father was not very good. And so they can't get around that primary image. So these are all images and there's infinitely more. But my point is, is that whatever those images are, whatever our primary image of God is, you can always tell what someone's primary image of God is by how they live their life because their primary image of God dictates how they live their life. 
But this image is different than anyone I've ever heard. A heartbroken lover? Like, let's be honest. Have we ever thought of God with that primary image, someone who has said, I love you, and been rejected? That would create certain things. Next slide. So this has some implications because if you're a linear learner, you're like, okay, so what does that even mean? Well, let's explore this a bit. So this should make us question the questions we ask about God. Is God a list of rules? Is, his, is, it, is a list of rules his main value? I mean, I, I've sort of come to this point in my life where I, I'm not sure the rules matter as much to God as we think. I, I think the God revealed in Christ just screams over and over and over again, God loves people more than the rules, even if the rules are good. But the truth of it is, is that you don't change the world by legislating it. You change the world by changing hearts, right? So even the really good rules, like don't kill each other, and we should keep that. But here's the thing. If the only reason you're not killing someone tonight is because there's a Bible verse for it, you might have missed the whole point, Right? If the only reason you're not stealing is because there's this flipping verse that's keeping me from stealing, I, I, think, I, I think that misses the entire point. Like, I'm in a room of women. Some of you are married. Can you, imagine, can you imagine if your husband said, look, I love you, but the only reason I'm not sleeping with everybody else is because, unfortunately, the Bible says, right? That's un- you'd, want to kill, you'd want to kill him, which is the other thing <laughs> that you're not supposed to be doing, right? There's a more... There's a, if, if somebody told you the only reason I'm loving you is because there's a rule, it... it even though it looks like it, there's something, uh-huh. or is a set of beliefs all there is? Is he keeping a list of all we've done only to bring it up on a giant movie screen later? Or, or is God impersonal? Like when we use words like fate, destiny, maybe you came up with this idea that, yeah, there's a God, but he's like way out there. He doesn't really care about you. So there's like fate, destiny, Look, the images of God as a king, a warrior, a judge allows for that thought. But the image of God as a lover who said, I love you first, and he's heartbroken, that doesn't allow for that. I think we need to give room to this image of God. Next slide. Let's say it this way. The God revealed in creation, scripture, and Christ is a God of love who takes the risk of saying, I love you first. And whoever says, I love you first in the relationship takes all the risk. Like, think through your day. Like, if, you, if you're married, right, uh, just think through, th- think through that, that awful, like, awful period of time called dating, right? Dating is just, it's, it's a terrible sort of time. Like, like it, it, in one sense, it's exhilarating. In another sense, it's just terrifying, and no one's being honest. Like, if you're, like, when you're dating, something happens in your mind called limerence. Limerence is the involuntary rush of dopamine in your brain when you're in the presence of somebody. Uh, it, it makes you addicted to them. This is why some of these young ladies, right, if they, they start dating, right, you can talk on the phone for four hours, right? You're like, you're like, man, I love him so much. We talked for four hours the other night. It felt like 10 minutes. But once you're married 10 years, a four-hour Talk sounds like hell, right? It's like, like if somebody said, we need to talk for four hours, you'd be like, what, is something wrong? Like, what's, like four, talking four hours is not the evidence something is right. Talking four hours is the evidence something is very, very wrong. Very, very, very wrong. But, but in, your, in your relationships, right? Like if you, when you're dating, whoever takes the plunge and says, I love you first, taking on and dating goes through all these it goes through all these awkward phases you know like like some of you ladies if you've been married 10 years or more this will apply to you like like if if, just think back if you can remember the first date you had with your husband right and just think about what you know about him now and ask how authentic was he actually being that night (laughs) 
The answer is none. Like, okay, does he smell today like he smelled that night? No. Does he dress today like he dressed that night? No. Does he order the food today the same way he ordered the food that night? No, your first date, he probably ordered a half a grilled chicken breast, some little bit of rice, and some broccoli. Why? Because he's trying to impress you with his physique and with all this stuff, right? Right Right now, he's like, I'll have 20 fried chicken wings, a large French fry, and a beer, right? And you're like, God, you're disgusting, right? What are you doing? He's like, well, you're stuck with me now, and I mean all, all of me, right? Like, does he do the things, did, did he do the things in the car after the meal on your first date that he does in the car now after the date? No, no, why? Because at some point, you know, you, you, you just have to quit pretending to have a, but, but everybody's pretending, you know, at, at first. But then at some point, after all that awkwardness, four-hour talks, endless texting, like no one realizes that an hour into a text, it's just easier to call. You just in there keep texting. Like, what are you doing? Like, there's, like, send. Hey, what's up? Like, no, 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 we're going to text for hours. We love it. But at some point after all of that, at some point after all of that, somebody says, I love you first. And whoever does that, oh, is taking all the risk. You imagine saying, I love you first. And they say, I know. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> no, when some, whoever says, I love you first is giving up all the power and consenting, hoping they reciprocate. That's the picture of God here. And he continues to love, even if the love is not returned. So let's talk through some implications for what that means in our marriages, in our momming, I would say in our dadding, but it's momming. So in our momming, in our wifing, um, in, 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 in our relationships at work. Like when we say Christians are people of love, are we? What does that mean? To say Christians are people of love doesn't mean anything. What if somebody has a jacked up picture of what love is? This picture of God gives us a pretty healthy picture of how love operates in the world. So, so let's, let's put some language on this. Next slide. So let's say it this way. Love has been giving away power. The other is empowered to accept, reject, step forward, or step back. Love is giving up control. To, to the extent we try to control someone is the extent we're not loving them. And can we just all admit, even if it's only private in here, every attempt we've ever made to get our way by controlling the other person has only led to frustration for us and them. Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't work because even if it does work, something in you knows that the only reason they did it was because you were controlling it, which takes away from the loving aspect that we're reaching for. Anyway, love, love therefore is giving away power. It's giving up control and just surrenders the desire to control to the other, other person. See, if God came in all of his power in essence, it would have scared people off. Imagine if God comes in his fullness and introduces himself. Hello. Like that's frankly terrifying. So what does he do? He empties himself and becomes a person. The word for that is incarnation. And the theological word for that is kenosis. Kenosis is anytime you humble yourself, and empty yourself for the good of somebody else. That, that word is used in Philippians 2, by the way. He considered himself of no reputation and did not consider equality with God something to be, to be grasped, but he emptied himself for the sake of humanity. That the, the, the God fully and finally and perfectly revealed by Christ is a, is a God that doesn't use his power to control. He actually empties himself so that he doesn't have to control. He can be consensual. 
that the love revealed by God in Jesus Christ is a, is a consent. It's a, it's a, hey, I consent in love to you, but I'm humble enough to wait for your mutual consent. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Jesus always chooses to submit his power to the higher ethic of love, touching lepers, dead bodies, speaking with the promiscuous. He never considered his own holiness something to be held over love for the broken. That, that what you see in the love of God in creation is it's never God is too holy to engage your mess. It's God's too holy not to engage the disorder, not to hurt it, shame it, condemn it, but to engage himself in that broken story in order to make a better narrative. That's the God of creation. The God revealed in scripture is always engaging the broken story right where the broken story is to reorder the disorder in order to make a better narrative. The God revealed in Christ always readily, steadily, consistently, and predictably engaging people's broken stories exactly where their broken story is, not to hurt them, but to reorder the broken story in order to make a better narrative. If some of you are old enough to remember Billy Graham, and what did they always sing at Billy Graham? Just as I am. That was like literally, yes, yes, just right where you are. And so one of my primary messages tonight is, is that if God is a God of love and love is giving away power, then what that means is, is that no matter where your broken story stands, God is willing to consent in love to engage that broken story, not to hurt it, not to criticize it, not to shame it, not to condemn it, but to reorder it into a better story. See, Jesus teaches us that there's weakness that is actually strength. Maybe one of the messages of the cross is for all of us who've been hurt to risk again because love is risky. One of the primary images you see in God that I don't think gets enough playtime is that God is a risk, a risk taker when it comes to love. He's willing to say, I love you first and take all the risk, wear your rejection if, he, if you reject him, and then just still be there every morning saying, I love you again. It, what would happen to our world if that became our primary image of God? You, you, would, you, would not, you would cease to see uneducated, unqualified people on the internet ranting about, if you don't do something, God's gonna, right? It, it, would, it wouldn't be that. It would be more, God is brokenhearted at the destruction we're bringing on ourselves. But if you're looking around every morning, he's reconsenting in love to say, I'm willing to engage your story right now if you'll let me. It's a much better picture. See, if we choose in our hurt to say, I'll never risk again, then we'll never love again. Because love, by definition, is risky. The decision, oh, sorry, yeah, the decision not to risk again. It is, is a decision not to love again because love is risky. So let's talk about love just for a second, okay? Next slide. Because when we say love, that doesn't matter. What matters is how we picture word, love, that word love working. So love is best applied as a celebration of the sublime, not the perfect. The people who are truly in love are not the ones who are delusional and say they're just perfect, there's nothing wrong with them. The people who are truly in love are the ones who could tell you if they wanted to. They could tell you the three biggest flaws of their partner. They could tell you the three things about them that annoy you the most, but you love them anyway. 
It's a celebration of the other person issues and all flaws and all brokenness and all. That's why all of us, when we hear some young person who's a little too utopian with how love works, oh, he's just perfect. We all know. (laughs) Ain't nobody perfect. And love doesn't work if someone's perfect. Someone's perfect. What's that? Love is best applied as a celebration of the sublime, not the perfect. Let's say it this way. Love is best seen as a connection through cause, not destination. All meaning in life is interpreted as a function of the struggle to get there, not getting there. This is true. In philosophy, it's called object desire and object cause. Object desire is that which you want. Object cause is the struggle to get what you want. And all meaning is a function of how we interpret the cause, not the object. This is why if you want to ruin your children, listen up, here's all you got to do. Ready? Get ready. If you want to ruin them, this is your goal. Here's all you got to do. Give them everything they want all the time without making them work for one thing about it. Here's what will happen. They'll interpret their life as less meaningful. It doesn't mean it's less meaningful. It just means they'll interpret their life as less meaningful. If, you're, if you do your kid's homework and the kid gets an A on the homework, the A doesn't mean as much as if they struggled through it and worked on the homework. It's object cause, not object desire. If you want a truck, that's your object desire. But let's say you sacrifice and struggle and save and you finally get the truck. When you're sitting in the truck, the meaning of that truck is not found in the truck. It's found in all the memories of what you went through to get to the truck. Love is the same way. Love is not a celebration of getting to the end of the journey of love. Love is a celebration of all the struggle and the cause to this. Like, I hope you're the happiest married group of people in the world. I really do. But whoever is the happiest married, happiest, whatever, whoever is the most happily married person in this room, and I hope it's you. I really do. And I hope there's a competition. We might can even have like a a fight later to see who's the most happily married person. I'm with you. and, And I hope it's you. But I can tell you, I don't know you, but I can tell this about you. The most happily married person in this room is not the person going, we've been together 35 years and there's nothing else to learn about them. That's not the happiest person. The happiest person is the one going, we've been together 35 years. I still don't really have a flipping clue, but I'm loving every minute of it. It's that. It's, it's love is best a celebration of the cause, not the destination. In other words, if God is love, God enjoys the journey of reordering our brokenness as much as he'll ever enjoy you getting over it or getting to it or getting to the end of your journey. So if you ever thought, I can't believe God is patient enough to journey with me one more day. Love, if God is love, love is a celebration of that journey more than it is a celebration of getting to the finish line of it. Let's say it a third way. Love is best seen as an exploration of the icon, not the possession of the idol. Idolatry is very effective in attraction. Here's an idol. An idol is any time you create something that you think will make you less lack. So there's something outside of you that if you think if you attain it, you'll feel better about yourself. That's idolatry. And it is very effective in attraction. You complete me. 
I can't live without you. You're the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. All that sounds nice in attraction. But once you're married, neither person can carry the weight of being the sole source of someone's wholeness. It just doesn't work, right? Right? Like everybody wants to be the idol for a season. But once they actually carry the weight that that idol brings, that is not delivering what it promised. Love is not a celebration of possessing the idol. Love is actually best a celebration of the icon. The difference between an icon and an idol is this. An idol is an image of God that we think is outside of us, that if we just possessed it, it would make us feel better. An icon is something we look at that draws us to explore the deeper meanings in something. And love is that. No wife wants to be the idol for her husband because we can't carry the weight of it. You do not want to be your husband's sole source of okayness. Nobody can carry that weight. But what every woman wants is for her husband to look at everything that she is and be intrigued to explore more of what that beauty brings, right? Love is a celebration of the icon, not the other. What does that mean for God and us? Well, it means that God never gets tired of the journey. He never gets tired of going deeper. He never gets tired of that next layer. He never expects you to get to the end of your journey. Actually, that would be the travesty because love is a celebration of these things. Now, let me remind us of a couple of things because I want to I bring us to a point here. Next slide. So the cross of Jesus is not something to believe in. It's something that should shape the way we see all things. The cross should inform how we handle conflict, how we handle violence, how we think about power. It's not just about the forgiveness of sins. It's not just a ticket to heaven. It's also, wait a minute, they treated me unjustly. What does the cross of Jesus Christ teach us about the love of God revealed in Christ? What does this mean? The cross is the ultimate rejection of God's love. God loving the broken story enough to humble himself, empty himself, engage the broken story, and then the broken story kills him. That's rejection only to take the rejection and turn it into the redemption of the broken story. This is the love of God revealed in Christ. So if you've ever been rejected, it's like the cross was the original Me Too movement. It's like, oh, they treated me unjustly. Yeah, yeah, me, me too. Oh, oh, I poured, I laid it all on the line and they didn't respond at all. Yeah, I, yeah, me, yeah, yeah, me too. I gave my life for them and they slapped me in the face for it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, me too. The cross was Jesus saying, you know what? I'm going to play by the same rules. I, I, I'm going to consent and consent and consent, but all the power is in your hand because I've laid it down. Do you want me in your life or not? Let's say it this way. Next slide. When it comes to connection, we generally do not want people to rush in and fix everything. Those people annoy us. <laughs> Isn't that true? Like you bring your problem and the first... It, People just rush in and want to fix everything. For most people, they don't like that. We actually want people to identify with the pain more than we want them to fix the problem. I think that's what makes the cross so beautiful, hey? One of the things that makes the cross so beautiful. If it was just about acceptance, God could have accepted people just because he's God and he wanted to. Oh, acceptance. Oh, I accept people. God can do what he likes. But the cross tells us that acceptance wasn't enough to God. God wanted to understand because to accept somebody without understanding them 
cheapens the acceptance, right? Like, what if your husband said, just so you understand, I fully accept you, but I don't understand a word coming out of your mouth, right? The acceptance is cheapened by the lack of understanding. The cross is that. The cross is saying, not only am I going this far to accept you, I'm going this far to understand you. I'm gonna become a part of the broken story, even if the broken story kills me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna play by the same rules so that no one could ever say God doesn't understand. It's that. When we realize that we're not alone is when we find strength to carry on. Like if we, sometimes we think, I'll say it this way, a lack of perspective is the enemy of hope, Right? When we think no one's ever felt this, and the cross is Jesus going, yeah, me too. No, I, you're not alone. You're, you're not alone. You're, you're, just, you're just not alone. Let, next slide. Let's say it this way. Jesus submitting to the people he loves murdering him shows us that God agrees to play by the same rules we do. He makes his love consensual and never coercive. He's willing to take the risk of brokenheartedness. Which leads me to this. Is there any of our primary images of God that we need to repent from? We, and repentance is not a shame-based thing. It just means to change the way we think about something. Maybe we've thought of God as someone who put our life on a giant movie screen. We're like, I, I'm sort of resisting it. Amen. If you've resisted the God who is going to shame you in front of everybody, good for you. That tells me you're probably more mentally healthy than I was at seven. Um but I have better news for that. And here's the problem. The problem is not that God can't handle it. The problem is, is if we have an unhealthy image of God, we can't handle it. It starts to inform how we treat our world. And then beautiful words like Christian get toxified by terrible images. All you have to do to ruin a beautiful word is to attach toxic images to it. That's all you have to do. And these toxic images come from poor images of God. It's not the left's fault It's not the atheist's fault. They don't really care. It's our fault. And I think there's this one passage that I want to close with this because it's just so beautiful. Next slide. This is the book of Jonah. So Jonah preaches the worst sermon ever to a group of people called the Ninevites. And I don't want to, it's not a part of tonight's message, but the Ninevites were horrible people. They skinned people alive. They did terrible, terrible maiming things to people who came across them. And Jonah points out how bad they are. Um, Not really. Jonah preaches the worst sermon. He just says, 40 days from now, you're going to be destroyed. Like God's so ticked at you. 40 days from now, your chaos is so bad. There's nothing you can really do about it. 40 days from now, you're going to be destroyed. He doesn't give them an out. He doesn't tell them why. He just pronounces their imminent doom. (laughs) <laughs> terrible sermon. And he only does it in five words, actually. But then it backfires and the Ninevites repent. Let me read it in English and I'll tell you what it says in Hebrew. When God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, the word turn there is the word repent. They repented from their evil ways. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. I want to point something out, a little bit of Bible nerd them here. The word evil ways and the word destruction, I underline them, are the same word in Hebrew. Ha'ara. Evil. The only translation that gets it right in this one instance is the KJV. The KJV says, 
When God saw that the Ninevites repented of their evil, God repented his evil. Now, I know, I know, I know. The NIV's like, we're not writing that. (laughs) We're not writing that. Well put, the Ninevites repented of their evil, so God relented of the destruction he had planned. It's not what it says. In Hebrew, it says, the Ninevites repented of evil, so God repented of evil. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, is God capable of evil? And does God need to repent? And is there ever a time where God responds to his own altar call? And you... You can see why the more modern, the KJV guys, they're like, we don't care, right? The NIV guys were like, where are that? Leads to too many questions. And in their good heartedness, they robbed us of the opportunity to wrestle with one of the most beautiful truths in the whole of scripture. And that is this, where is God when we repent? Where is God when we when I was a teenager, I went to revival camp. I know. It's something Americans do. <laughs> if you've ever wondered, why doesn't he have much luck with the ladies? That's why. Um, the revivalist was a guy whose whole job was to manipulate the emotions of adolescent teenagers to get big altar calls. And this traumatized me I'm 46, I still remember this. This dude took a baby doll and set it on fire. Hold on, it's gonna get worse. He set it on fire and he said, look closely, look. We're all like, oh God, because the baby doll's made of plastic. It's like, and we're like looking away and he's like, you look up here, look. This is exactly what God's going to do to you. I know. Don't be too shocked. It's in some church's doctrinal statements. This is what God's going to do to you if you don't get up here and repent. Shoot. So we're all up at the front crying and scared and jacked up. The plastic smells, and so Jimmy threw up, and then the guy's like, demon, he's throwing up. No, the plastic smelled. So horrible. And I'm no doubt the revivalist went backstage and felt good about himself because he got a big altar call. Here's the problem. In his story, God was standing above us demanding we repent so that he'll be kind. In the scripture, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Where is God when you repent? I love the way the rabbis teach this passage. They teach it as divine mirroring. In other words, if you're willing to go through the pain of repentance and you're looking for where God is while you're repenting, he's the one kneeling right beside you, repenting with you. In other words, if you're willing to go through the pain of repentance and you're looking for where God is, he's not standing above you demanding it. He's kneeling beside you, doing it with you, that God is always engaging the broken story in order to make a better narrative. So I bless you tonight. 
I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. I bless you to be people that at least allow in your prism of diamond thoughts around the image of God, allow every now and then a thought about he's a heartbroken lover, one who is regularly saying I love you, and he's heartbroken when it's not responded to. And if at any point we're willing to repent and invite him into our broken story, he's not standing above us demanding it and threatening harm. He's the one kneeling beside us. For when we repent our evil, God kneels down and repents with us. Where is God when we repent? He's repenting too, so that we never have to do it alone. May we engage that over the course of this weekend. Thanks for letting me be a part of your night. Grace and peace, everybody. Wow. Wow, wow. Wow. That was, what an amazing, beautiful, loving God we serve. How beautiful was that? Are you encouraged just as much as I am? It's just that wow. Uh, wow. Can we, just, can we just pray? Let's just close our eyes. Lord, I just thank you so much that you love us so much. I thank you that you come to our broken story wherever we are at. And I just pray for people tonight that are struggling in that broken story and struggling to find you. You are right there. You are right there with us. And Lord, I just pray that your presence would be with us tonight as we leave this place, that as we go to sleep, as we wake up tomorrow morning, that we would know that you are in our struggling story and that you're drawing us closer to yourself and drawing us closer to that answer that you long for in our lives. We thank you for that in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you. So this is just night one. Come back uh, this week. Uh, tomorrow night, it's the the meeting starts at um, seven pm. I'm just floored. Um, the meeting starts at seven pm, and there is child mining for two to grade two um, children. Then on Sunday morning at nine thirty, and Heritage Kids is available for all children. Woohoo! Parents said, "Yeah," and. On Sunday night will be our final meeting and it's at 6pm. Yes, it is. So it's at 6pm. So come with an open heart. Bring a friend who needs to know how much this amazing God loves us. Um, if you would like to uh, give a love offering for Pastor Shane's um, ministry tonight, um, the info desk will be open. Tiffany will be there and... You can give there. Um, why don't you just stay for some supper and some fellowship? Remember, there's only 10 minutes to get your resources if you uh, want to have a look, or even if you just want to have a look, go there first and then come and let's um, partake of the supper there. If you have any questions about tonight or, or there's something that you is just weighing on your heart or something like that, feel free to come and see us. You know, and talk through things or chat with someone uh, close to you. 
Thank you, lovely ladies. Let's go and enjoy the rest of the night. <laughs>